Father, we thank you so much for the gift of this evening and of this time together. We pray that you would help us to put aside all the other things that have preoccupied us during the day, and that you would open our hearts that we might learn uh, from the wisdom that con is contained in this book, especially the wisdom that is derived from your word. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us through this time, that you would help us to be conformed more and more to the image of Jesus Christ. And we offer this time to you in his name. Amen. So I'm uh, a special word of welcome to our uh, guests that are here from St. Stephen's Academy in Portland, Oregon. Uh, we're delighted to have them with us tonight. And as we get started, uh, usually I have a very obscure piece of music for you. And uh, we have not done very well on, on guessing that. Uh, but I have given you something tonight that if you don't know what this is, I may just have to leave the room. Uh, so we will see uh, if this sounds familiar. All right, well, it was really good that y'all got that before we even got to the next part where the words actually start. Joanna got it just from the second note of the introduction. That was really good. But I chose this very deliberately because you will remember that one of the themes that we've been talking about in this chapter is the theme of theological innovation and the idea that Jesus suddenly morphed into someone different in recent times, and only we have been smart enough to figure that out. But if you listen to the words of that hymn, great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. Does anyone know what the next line is? There is no shadow of turning with thee. Anybody know the next line? Thou changest not. Thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. I.e., like the scripture verse that we've been focusing on, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So more about that in a minute. Good job on that. Uh, so let's say together our verse. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So I want to welcome those of you who are new, whether you're in person or you're on the podcast. Uh, as we've said, there are several approaches to this class. You can be on the beach, which means you parachute in and you don't do anything. Uh, you may not even pay attention. That's great if that's all you want to do. Or you can snorkel, go deep on the parts that you like, or you can scuba dive. And uh, tonight is a good example of scuba diving. There is a wonderful essay for scuba divers that I had in the handout pile. And I was very surprised to see that they're all gone because this is a very dense essay, y'all. Um, but 
bless you for picking it up. Uh, it is a lecture that Lewis gave at Westcott House, which is an Anglican theological school in Cambridge in the UK. And he was giving it on the problems with the higher critical school of biblical criticism. And it is very much in line with the things we've been talking about in here, but it is a bit of a deep dive. Uh, but I will be sending that out uh, with the class email. So if you want to do that deep dive, God bless you. It is uh, probably about 18 pages of pithy prose, but it's glorious. Uh, which brings me to the email list. If you're not on our email list, um, please sign up if you're here in person. Um, if you are out in podcast land somewhere, um, please Google St. Philip's Church, Charleston, South Carolina in the United States. And uh, that will get you to our website, and then you can shoot me an email, and I'll get you added to the list. So uh, we've said before that one of the reasons that this book is a work of genius is that it is operating simultaneously on three different levels, and it works independently on each one of those levels. So the last battle is a capstone work that draws together all of the Chronicles of Narnia and brings them to a glorious close. It is also a profound reflection on the sin of Eden, on the means of grace and the glory of heaven. And it also, perhaps most interestingly for us today, is a parable about following Jesus that is particularly applicable to 21st century America and these theological concepts of word and truth that are so vitally important. So we talked a little bit in the beginning about how Lewis and the Inklings, Tolkien and the others in that group believed that the power of story was really the way to reach people with theological truth, that people would not read didactic, heavy theological work, but if you could write a good story, as Lewis put it, you could smuggle any amount of theology in behind the watchful dragons of people's minds without their knowing it. And in this book, Lewis is playing with a lot of things, but we have this uh, ape who is the central character, uh, and then a donkey who is another central character, and a unicorn. And Lewis is a medievalist. These animals all mean things. So the ape is always sort of a figure of fun, somebody who is mischievous and tricky and not to be trusted. Uh, the donkey is slow and dependable. And we talked about uh, in scripture, donkeys have a really unique role. You see the donkey that bears Mary with Jesus in her womb to Bethlehem, and then the donkey that bears Jesus to his crucifixion in Jerusalem. And then we have, of course, the whole story of Balaam's ass in Numbers 22, where the donkey has more insight spiritually than anyone else in the whole book of Numbers. Uh, so we've got all of that going on, the unicorn being the medieval symbol of grace and purity, and also came to be a symbol for the incarnation. And then this whole idea of reverence for trees and woods that is part and parcel of this uh, idea that we are to be the stewards of the beautiful creation that God has made. So we are um, still stuck in chapter three. Apologies if you really wanted to do a chapter a week. Um, there's just too much in here to do that. I'm still restraining myself though, you'll be happy to know, because uh, I could probably spend a year just on chapter three, but we're gonna finish it tonight. So in that, 
we have the chapter titled The Ape and Its Glory. And the interesting thing here is that the ape kind of holds court with all of these Narnian creatures, and then he declares not only that he is the only intermediary to Aslan, the great king, the lion who represents Jesus, but he also says, oh, by the way, you've all thought that I was an ape, but I'm not. I am a man. Now, he's clearly an ape. But he says, I am a man, and you are to call me a man and treat me like a man. I am not an ape, despite that the objective reality is that I'm an ape. I insist that you call me something else that I want you to see me as. So there are a bunch of themes in this chapter, sin, remorse, and repentance, faith that's in vain, true friendship and loyalty, lies, selfishness, greed, and oppression, deceit and discernment, pride and the uniqueness of man made in God's image, slavery, stealing, and tyranny, freedom, insults, and tyranny, the danger of theological innovation, and courage and standing up for truth. And this chapter is only about 20 pages long with big type. It's pretty amazing. So we're going to do a deeper dive into two more themes tonight, and then we're going to move in to chapter four. So the first part of this is the danger of theological innovation. And to that passage that we're going to be looking at is this one. Please, please, said the high voice of a woolly lamb, who was so young that everyone was surprised he dared to speak at all. What is it now, said the ape, be quick. Please, said the lamb, I can't understand. What have we to do with the Calamines? We belong to Aslan. They belong to Tash. They have a god called Tash. They say he has four arms and the head of a vulture. They kill men on his altar. I don't believe there's any such person as Tash. But if there was, how could Aslan be friends with him? All the animals cocked their heads sideways and all their bright eyes flashed toward the ape. They knew it was the best question anyone had asked yet. The ape jumped up and spat at the lamb. Baby, he hissed, silly little bleeder. Go home to your mother and drink milk. What do you understand of such things? Now that is a closely reasoned logical argument, isn't it? <laughs> Calling names, spitting, all of that. It is, uh, if you studied logic, this is the ad hominem fallacy. What do you understand of such things? But you others, listen, Tash is only another name for Aslan. All that old idea of us being right and the Calamines wrong is silly. We know better now. The Calamines use different words, but we all mean the same thing. Tash and Aslan are only two different names for you-know-who. That's why there can never be any quarrel between them. Get that into your heads, you stupid brutes. Tash is Aslan. Aslan is Tash. So some relevant scripture. Take care that you be not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, how did these nations serve their gods, that I may do the same? You shall not worship the Lord your God in this way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods, for they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods, from Deuteronomy. And then, if a prophet or dreamer of dreams arises, 
among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice, and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. So part of what Lewis is trying to get at here is in the story, they are saying, Aslan, all that you ever knew about him, all that you were ever taught about him, all of that is wrong, and you were just stupid, all you people, stupid. You were just stupid to have believed it. And I know better because I'm modern. That was what people used to believe back then, and all those people were stupid. And so we're so much smarter now, and now we've realized that Aslan, the great lion who gave his life on the altar to save all of Narnia, he's actually the same as Tash, this uh, vulture god that demands human sacrifice. And that's just obvious. And if you don't understand that, y'all are just stupid. Well, that's not really a great theological argument, uh, but it's what uh, the ape is trying to put forward here. And this whole way of theological innovation is very much like that, that people will say all manner of things and sometimes say them very loudly, but without any evidence whatsoever. And Lewis wrote a great essay called, What Are We to Make of Jesus Christ? And this is included in his essay collection that's called God and the Dock. Uh, and if you know about the English legal system, the dock is the witness stand. So it's like God is in the witness stand and he's being cross-examined by the lawyer. And so the question the essay is trying to answer is, what are we to make of Jesus and the evidence about him? And Lewis says, on the one side of the evidence, there's clear, definite moral teaching from Jesus. On the other hand, there are claims from Jesus which, if not true, are those of a megalomaniac compared with whom Hitler was the most sane and humble of men. There is no halfway house, and there is no parallel in other religions. If you had gone to Buddha and asked him, are you the son of Brahma, he would have said, my son, you are still in the veil of illusion. If you had gone to Socrates and asked, are you Zeus, he would have laughed at you. And then we talked earlier about how in um, Islam, there's such a reverence for the idea of Allah. There's such a reverence. And any profanation or uh, saying something bad about Allah will be met with really swift reaction. And we talked about how we've lost that sense of the sacred and reverence. And part of what the Quran says is if you um, profane the name of Allah, you may deserve to die. So, and then if you went to Confucius and you asked Confucius, are you heaven or the heavenly teacher? I think he would probably have replied, remarks which are not in accordance with nature are in bad taste. So the idea of a great moral teacher saying the kinds of things that Jesus said, saying, I am the son of God, I am the way, the truth, and the life, I am the bread of life, all of these kinds of things, 
Somebody who said those, if it wasn't true, um, they would certainly not be a great moral teacher. Lewis says, in my opinion, the only person who can say that sort of thing is either God or a complete lunatic suffering from that form of delusion which undermines the whole mind of man. If you think you're a poached egg when you were looking for a piece of toast to suit you, you may be sane, maybe, but if you think you are God, there is no chance for you. We may note in passing that Jesus was never regarded as a mere moral teacher throughout all of history. Jesus was never regarded as a mere moral teacher. He did not produce that effect on any of the people who actually met him. He produced mainly three effects. Hatred, people who heard his teaching and were horrified and wanted to kill him, or terror, they were terrified of him, or adoration. There was no trace anywhere of people expressing mild approval. So the problem is that we have this sort of pretend pluralism where we think all religions basically are the same. But the problem with that is it's just not true. And one of the things Lewis says in the beginning of Mere Christianity is that if you look at other religions, all other religions have some elements of them that are good things. And those things you don't have to discount if you don't believe that religion. But he said trying to say that they're all the same is just demonstrably not true. And so there was a really interesting thing that happened a number of years ago, um, around 2010, uh, when a religion teacher at Boston University got invited to appear on Comedy Central's The Colbert Report. That's not their usual guest. And he wrote a book saying that Gandhi, the Dalai Lama, and others have preached about the shared benign beliefs unifying all great religions, and then dismissing that message as garbage. So Stephen Prothero wrote this book that is called God is Not One, The Eight Rival Religions That Run the World and Why Their Differences Matter. And the book argues that the globe's eight major religions hold different and irreconcilable assumptions. They may all push the golden rule, as progressives like to point out, but no religion really considers ethics its sole goal. Doctrine, ritual, and myth are crucial too, and on these there is no meeting of the religious minds. Christians who think they're doing non-Christians a favor by saying they too can be saved ignore the fact that Jews, Muslims, Buddhists, and Confucians either don't believe in sin or don't focus on salvation from it. Hinduism, Taoism, the African religion, Yoruba, round out the eight. The notion of pretend pluralism, as Prothero derides it, may be nobly intentioned, but it is dangerous, disrespectful, and untrue. It blinds us to understanding and therefore solving things like Islamic fundamentalist terrorism that is not part of certain branches of Islam at all, or Jewish-Arab disputes over Jerusalem, or the contest for Kashmir between two nuclear powers with competing religious majorities, Hindu India and Muslim Pakistan. So basically the point of this 
is that the great religions are very different from each other. And the more you study them, the more you realize that they are different from each other. And that doesn't mean that you should hate people that have other religious views. Jesus calls us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. He calls for us to seek to speak the truth and love to people. But part of the problem is that we, when we start thinking, well, everyone's the same and they should just all know what the right thing to do is, that just doesn't work. And I wanna give a little plug here for the class that Jeff Miller did Sunday morning on the history and background that leads up to what we're dealing with in the Middle East right now. And he managed to cover 4,000 years of history in about 40 minutes. Uh, which was quite impressive. But if you go to the St. Philip's YouTube channel, um, you can find that. And it is a great help in understanding uh, the situation that we have right now and realizing that there are people who are innocent victims on both sides of all of this. And that part of our job as Christians is to be praying for peace, seeking to love even those that we disagree with, uh, and trying to pray that God will somehow bring peace to Jerusalem, which is something that has been a point of conflict for centuries and centuries and centuries. But the scriptures enjoin us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. So this leads us to the whole idea of syncretism. And that's a fancy word, uh, but basically what it means is that the process of exchange an interaction that occurs when two or more different distinct belief systems are fused to create a new religion. The term may also be used to refer to an established religion that has adopted beliefs from other faiths. All religions can be considered syncretic to an extent, leading some to argue against the use of the term. But one of the problems with religious syncretism is that it has been used politically to illegitimatize, to control, and even eradicate certain belief systems. But it's a way to explore how cultures and religions try to transform themselves under the pressure of change. And it should be thought of as a dynamic process rather than something specific. But the major religions like Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, um, any that have a concept of what orthodoxy is, are hostile to the idea of syncretism, and is that theological innovation trying to say that all these religions are the same, or that all these different gods are the same, or that all the religions have the same view about who Jesus is, is just wrong. It's demonstrably wrong. And so part of our job as Christians is to understand these differences and to appreciate the differences and to seek to be in loving dialogue with people who differ from us, uh, rather than missing the fact that there are fundamental differences. So listen to the way this takes place in the story. So the lamb, and it's not an accident, nothing in Lewis is an accident, but it's not an accident that he has a lamb asking this question. Because the lamb, of course, not only is a symbol of innocence and purity, but is a symbol for Jesus and for the truth of the gospel. In the book of Revelation, the lamb is the only one who is found worthy to open the scroll. So the lamb says, I can't understand 
What have we to do with the Kellermines? We belong to Aslan. They belong to Tash. They have a god called Tash. They say he has four arms and the head of a vulture. They kill men on his altar. I don't believe there's any such person as Tash, but if there was, how could Aslan be friends with him? And then Tyrion, the king, says, how could the terrible god Tash, who fed on the blood of his people, possibly be the same as the good lion by whose blood all Narnia was saved? So they're posing this question and saying what the ape is saying can't possibly be true. How could Aslan and Tash be the same? And how could you merge them into some god called Tashland? But the ape says, Tash is only another name for Aslan. All that old idea, there it is again, that old idea, we're new, we're smarter, we know better. All that old idea of us being right and the Kellermines wrong is silly. The Kellermines use different words, but we all mean the same thing. Tash and Aslan are only two different names for you know who. That's why there can never be a quarrel between them. Get that into your heads, you stupid brutes. Tash is Aslan, Aslan is Tash. Now, you'll notice that he is talking down to everyone and insulting them in the same process while he's trying to get them to believe something that is demonstrably not true. And part of the thing that this makes so clear is that we, if we are Christians, we need to know Christian doctrine we need to understand the scripture that holds up Christian doctrine so that when we hear error, when we hear ideas like these things that are so off in the story, we're able to respond. And we need to be able to respond and not to just be taken in by it. So that brings us to the next part about courage and standing up for the truth. So you'll remember uh, in the story that what happens is that Tyrion and Jewel have been uh, taken into custody. And of course, the Calermines say uh, they've been taken into custody because of the great skill and daring and courage of the Calermines, when in fact, Tyrion and Jewel walked up to them and said, we surrender. So there's a little misrepresentation going on there. Uh, but they have been bound and uh, taken away to the side while all of this speech about the ape being a man and Tash, Tash and Aslan being the same is going on. So this little passage and the story. Up till now, the king and Jewel had said nothing. They were waiting until the ape should bid them speak, for they thought it was no use interrupting. But now as Tyrion looked round on the miserable faces of the Narnians, and saw how they would all believe that Aslan and Tash were one and the same, he could no longer bear it. Ape, he cried with a great voice, you lie, you lie damnably. You lie like a calamine, you lie like an ape. He meant to go on and ask how the terrible god Tash, who fed on the blood of his people, could possibly be the same as the good lion by whose blood all Narnia was saved if he had been allowed to send the ape down. But before he could say another word, two calamines struck him in the mouth with all their force, and a third from behind kicked his feet from under him. And as he fell, 
The ape squealed in rage and terror. Take him away, take him away, take him where he cannot hear us and we cannot hear him. There, tie him to a tree. I will, I mean Aslan will, do justice to him later. So some scripture that relates to this. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. And then from Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And then from 1 Peter, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And this is so important to remember that we're not just out in neutral territory on a walk in the park. Um, the devil is active and he is opposed to those who follow Jesus. And Lewis in the Screwtape Letters has this great quotation, courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the testing point. And that means that you can have all sorts of virtues, but if you are too afraid to be able to practice them or to speak about them, then they accomplish nothing. And the point of learning virtue is to be able to lead a virtuous life that makes a difference for the gospel. So uh, Joshua is a great book to look at when you're looking at the idea of courage. And one of the verses that's repeated over and over through all of Joshua's trials, because Joshua, his heart fails him many times in the book of Joshua, and he ultimately is vindicated. But the Lord says to him over and over again, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And that is worth thinking about. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you feel frightened and dismayed by the state of the world, because I think if we are honest, all of us feel frightened and dismayed. But what the Lord is reminding us is that he is with us wherever we go, and that even though things are frightening and dismaying, the fact of the matter is that God loves his creation, he loves every person who is made in his image, and that he is working out his purposes. So another scripture from Ephesians 4 about how to deal in these situations. And God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. And basically what St. Paul is saying here in this letter to the Ephesians is that all of these people with spiritual gifts 
have been given to us who are believers to build up the body of Christ. And that word is almost the same word that if uh, Paul had been writing in Greek about going to the gym and working out, it's the same word he would have used to make the body stronger by resistance and continual work to make the body stronger, building up the body of Christ. That as we grow in faith and knowledge, that will enable us to no longer be children, to not be tossed around by all of the big words and ideas that are being thrown around out there and every wind of doctrine by the cunning of humans, by the craftiness of people who are deceitful. So we are to be built up on the one hand, and that is to enable us to choose proactively to do something very different from what the world does when it encounters things that it disagrees with. What we are called to do when we encounter all of these things that we disagree with is this. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So speaking the truth in love is to be our call. And this is so important that those two things are wed together because it's very easy to speak the truth and to be loud and to scream at people uh, or it's very easy to be loving and just say, Whatever you want to do, that is just the sweetest thing. Bless your heart. Um, It's very easy to do either of those, but to actually speak the truth when it's a difficult and painful truth and to do it in love, wishing for the best, the person that you're talking to who is made in the image of God, who is someone for whom Christ died, whom you may disagree with profoundly, that is a hard call. But the only way to do that is by being like Jesus. And then we are told again by Paul in 1 Corinthians 16, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, do everything in love. And then Jesus himself in John 15, right in the middle of that discourse on the eve of uh, his crucifixion, where he's washed the disciples' feet, instituted uh, the Lord's Supper. Uh, He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So we should not be surprised if there's suffering and persecution, but notice that we are not called in the face of suffering and persecution to just give up. We are still called to speak the truth in love, to be built up into the full stature of Christ. But there's an important caveat about persecution and suffering And I love this little poem that Lewis wrote. Erected by, this is supposed to be an epitaph on a tombstone. Erected by her sorrowing brothers 
in memory of Martha Clay. Here lies one who lived for others. Now she has peace, and so have they. And Lewis writes brilliantly. I was looking for the quotation. I couldn't find it. But he says, we are all too prone to think that if we are suffering, it is because we are suffering for righteousness' sake. We have been following Jesus, and the result of that is the world is raining on us. But Lewis said it's very important to ask the question first before you decide that you're being persecuted for being righteous, if you're being persecuted for being rude and obnoxious. <laughs> and that very often we fail to speak the truth in love. We are obnoxious, we are rude, we are condescending, we are arrogant, and then we get flack for it. And he says that is not persecution for righteousness sake, that's persecution for failing to honor 1 Corinthians 13, where it says love is not rude. So it is important to not be like Martha Clay, to be one of those people who is um, so good that it hurts others. <laughs> so the caution is to remember that though Jesus says when we are blessed, when we're persecuted for righteousness sake, we have to be careful not to presume that persecution is because we are righteous. And we must be careful that the persecution is not because we are rude or unkind. But the sober truth is that we also have to be aware that even speaking the truth in love can lead to consequences. It is no accident that the ape, when Tyrion speaks the truth, the ape commands this, take him away, take him away, Take him where he cannot hear us, nor we hear him. There tie him to a tree. And this is a very deliberate echo. If you go and read the accounts of Jesus's trial and judgment before the Sanhedrin and Pilate, the echoes of that leading to Jesus's crucifixion are right here. And that whole idea of taking him and tying him to a tree it's very much, uh, again, Lewis reminding us that sometimes suffering and persecution will lead to death. So on that happy note, uh, let's move to chapter four. So chapter four, what happened that night? So things are in a pretty bleak place at the end of chapter three. The last king of Narnia and his best friend, the unicorn, are tied to trees uh, they are kicked and gagged, and the ape who has declared himself a man is holding forth about how he's going to enslave all of the Narnian people. Sounds great, right? But an amazing night happens. So Tyrion is tied to this tree that's some distance away, but he can sort of see the stable. But as night falls, some of the small Narnian animals, at great risk to themselves, uh, with great courage, come to tend to Tyrion, and they bring him food, and they bring him a cup of wine, which is, again, a little bit like that image of Jesus on the cross. 
But if you haven't read this part, please go read it because it's so beautiful and they're swinging off of each other's tails to be able to climb high enough to press this little cup that they've been so careful not to spill to Tyrion's lips and then they reverse the whole thing to get down and then they go back up again and it's just beautiful. And so these animals are tending to his needs and Tyrion is deeply moved by the love of these creatures and comforted in the midst of his pain and sorrow. And he cries out to Aslan, a prayer to Aslan. And he says, Aslan, even if I can't be saved, even if I have to give my life, please do something. Please intervene to save your people. And right at that moment, Tyrion has this vision and he's transported out of Narnia and all of a sudden everything he sees looks really bizarre and he's in this room with these children sitting at a table and they're wearing what he thinks are really weird clothes and there's weird furniture and weird things hanging on the wall and in fact what he's seeing is Peter, Lucy, Edmund, Jill, and Eustace who if you've read the other Narnia stories are all the people who have been the heroes in different eras of Narnian history. And they've all gone back to England where they are children, um, some of them late in their teens at this point. And so he sees all of them and he's very excited because Peter says that he is Peter the High King. And Tyrion knows that Peter has come back to help sometime. So he's thrilled that he's seeing Peter the High King as a result of this prayer to Aslan and he gets ready to beg for help and he finds that he can't speak at all. His lips are sealed and he's utterly frustrated and then the vision fades away and then it's almost worse that that happened because he thinks he's failed. He thinks that he's had the vision, Aslan has helped him and somehow, because maybe he was not worthy, he hasn't been able to beg for help and so now they're doomed. But the interesting thing is that we see uh, two themes that we're going to try to unpack tonight. The first is the loneliness and the suffering of the king for doing the right thing. And part of the reason this is such an important theme, and remember this is a book that's also operating as a children's story, sometimes you do the right thing and it doesn't work out so well. You know, it would be great to say every time you do the right thing, that everyone just appreciates it, and they say, thank you so much for doing the right thing. Here's a candy bar. Um, but that is not the way it works. Often you do the right thing, and it makes people angry. Or there are unfortunate consequences, or consequences that are manifestly unjust that you can't do anything about. And Lewis is very honest about that. So in this passage, uh, he tells us a little bit about what Tyrion is experiencing. The king was so dizzy from being knocked down that he hardly knew what was happening until the Calermines untied his wrists and put his arms straight down his, by his side and set him with his back against an ash tree. Then they bound ropes around his ankles and knees and his waist and his chest and left him there. What worried him worst at the moment, for it is often little things that are hardest to stand, was that his lip was bleeding where they had hit him, and he couldn't wipe the little trickle of blood away, although it tickled him. I wonder what they've done to Jewel, thought the king. 
Presently, the crowd of beasts broke up and began going away in different directions. Some passed close to Tyrion. They looked at him as if they were both frightened and sorry to see him tied up, but none of them spoke. Soon they had all gone, and there was silence in the wood. Then hours and hours went past, and Tyrion became first very thirsty and then very hungry. And as the afternoon dragged on and turned into evening, he became cold too. His back was very sore. The sun went down and it began to be twilight. The stars came out and time went slowly on. Imagine how slowly, while the last king of Narnia stood stiff and sore and upright against the tree in his bonds. And remember, there's a great irony here because what led Tyrion into all this trouble in the first place was lashing out because the trees had been cut. So some scripture. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your heart, revere Christ as Lord. And then from Romans 5. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And this is something that is so important for us to recover because one of the theological innovations that is very much a creature of the 20th and early 21st century in America particularly is the whole prosperity gospel, which is not something that is based in scripture at all. And the idea is that if you are suffering, uh, you should just rebuke that because God's will for you is that you should be rich. And uh, it's very much like, I'm not gonna sing this. I actually sang this in a sermon. I don't know what came over me. Uh, <laughs> but there's a great old song that y'all are too young to know by Janis Joplin, and the words are, oh Lord, would you buy me a Mercedes Benz? My friends all drive Porsches, I must make amends. Worked hard all my lifetime, no help from my friends. Oh Lord, would you buy me a Mercedes Benz? Oh Lord, would you buy me a color TV? Dialing for dollars is trying to find me. And it just goes on and on. But that, that really sums up the prosperity gospel, that we think, Jesus is sitting in heaven waiting to wave his magic wand and put a red Mercedes with a bow in our driveway. And that is heresy. I'm sorry if you didn't know that. Um, but that is heresy. That is not what the Christian faith is about in any way, shape, or form. And part of what we need to understand is this whole prosperity gospel idea. No why that is wrong. And we also need to not necessarily be seeking out suffering, 
uh, because that is not what God calls us to do, but to be aware that suffering is part of the equation when you're a Christian. It will not always be suffering in every moment. We are created for joy. Joy is part of the equation as well, but there can also be joy and suffering. One of the interesting things is that the book of the New Testament, which is most full of the theology of joy, is Philippians. And Philippians is a short little book uh, that is all about joy. The fourth chapter, which we just had the epistle from that this past Sunday, starts off, rejoice, and again I say to you, rejoice. And that's a big, strong word. But Paul is writing that epistle while he is chained to the wall in jail. So that is not, he is not on, uh, you know, one of these great island vacations that's an adults only pina coladas on the beach sort of situation. He is in jail, but he is able to experience joy because he knows Jesus and the truth of who Jesus is and that Jesus' kingdom is what matters. So the second theme here, the love and loyalty of the Narnian talking beast. When it was almost dark, Tyrion heard a light pitter-patter of feet and saw some small creatures coming toward him. The three on the left were mice, and there was a rabbit in the middle. On the right were two moles. Both of these were carrying little bags on their back, which gave them a curious look in the dark. So at first he wondered what kind of beasts they were. Then, in a moment, they were all standing up on their hind legs, laying their cool paws on his knees and giving his knees snuffly animal kisses. could reach his knees because Narnian talking beasts of that sort are bigger than the dumb beasts of the same kinds in England. Lord King, dear Lord King, said their shrill voices, we are so sorry for you. We daren't untie you because Aslan might be angry with us. That is, yes. Not the real Aslan. But we've brought you your supper. Little friends, said Tyrion, how can I thank you for all this? You need it, you need it, said the little voices. What else can we do? We don't want any other king. We're your people. If it were only the ape and the calamines who were against you, we would have fought till we cut into pieces before we'd have let them tie you up. We would, we would indeed. But we can't go against Aslan. Do you think it really is Aslan, asked the king? Oh, yes, yes, said the rabbit. He came out of the stable last night. We all saw him. Some scripture. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And then from Galatians, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. And one of the things that you see here is Tyrion has gone from being the person that, ooh, if you got invited to go hang out with him, that would be the greatest thing ever. He's gone from the height of popularity and glory down to the depths. And he's now tied up, and even being with him uh, makes you risk your life in the anger of the ape. And yet, these little beasts, who are not the leaders of anything, they're just regular beasts, these little beasts understand 
what it means to love at all times. They don't abandon their friend when everything goes wrong and his future looks bleak. They don't act standoffish or awkward or think, well, I wouldn't know what to say. They go right to him as soon as they can, and the very first thing they do is show their love for him. By And this is astounding because think about jumping up on the king and kissing his knees. This is not the way you treat a royal personage. But what they're doing is they are showing their deep love for him in a way that is personally embarrassing to themselves. They are being vulnerable with their affection and they are showing that no matter what has happened to him, they are in his corner and they love him. And they have put thought and ingenuity in how to love him. They have prepared to be able to carry on their little backs all of the things that are necessary to feed a meal to a 24-year-old strapping young man. This is not something that you just do by accident, and they did not have Trader Joe's that they could stop by and pick up a few things. They planned how to love him well. And it's so interesting because they, you know, Tyrion says, how can I thank you? And their immediate response is not say, well, when you come back in your power, would you make me Lord of the Lone Isles or something like that? Their whole response is, no, 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 don't thank us. What else could we do? Because we don't want any other king. We want you. We love you. You are the one for us. We are your people. There is so much that we could learn in the body of Christ from the way that Lewis writes in this passage. Uh, there's a little saying that people say that Christians are the only ones who kill their own wounded. And often that's true, that we fail to love when it's costly. But the scriptures call us to love when it is costly and when it's not costly, when it's full of joy and easy, but also when it's painful and hurtful and requires work and inconvenience and danger on our parts to love well. But you see Lewis illustrating this so beautifully here, this theme of loyalty and love is going to pervade this whole story. So I want to close tonight with something that is an excerpt from the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, you've probably never heard of that. Uh, but it was written in the 1500s in the period of great religious turmoil. And it is a beautiful affirmation of something that we need to remember. So I'm going to ask you to read the question and the answer with me. What is your only comfort in life and death that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ? He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me 
of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. That is an affirmation that we need to all take to heart. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the one who has done all the things that this catechism says, that you have brought us out of the kingdom of darkness and to the kingdom of your wonderful light. Lord, we pray that you would help us to know that our hope and our future are anchored in you alone, in your finished work on the cross and in the glorious truth of your holy word. Lord, we pray that you would help us to put on the full armor of God each day, that we would not be assaulted by the lies of the devil, but that we would hold out the word of life in the midst of the crooked and perverse generation, that we might shine like stars, holding out that word of life to this world you so love. For we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all for being here. Please try to meet someone you have not met before you go home.